This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I know not which mortifies me most, that I should fear to write what I think, or my country bear such a state of things. We agree particularly in the necessity of some reform and of some better security for civil liberty. There is a most respectable part of our state who have been enveloped in the XYZ delusion and who destroy our unanimity for the present moment. This disease of imagination will pass over because the patients are essentially republican. For the present, I should be for resolving the alien and sedition laws to be against the Constitution and merely void, and for addressing the other states to obtain similar declarations, and I would not do anything at this moment which should commit us further, but reserve ourselves to shape our future, measures or no measures, by the events which may happen. As illustrated by this letter from Jefferson to Virginia State Delegate John Taylor of Caroline on November 26th, before 1798 was out, the Democratic Republicans were already planning how to respond to the Alien and Sedition Acts and to regain some of the ground that the publication of the XYZ papers had cost them. The end of the year would see groundwork being laid for the changes in store for the U.S. and the world in the coming two years as the 18th century transitioned into the 19th. Before we get to that, though, I'd like to welcome you to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Thomas Daly of the American Biography Podcast for providing the intro quote for this episode. If you haven't listened to American Biography yet, I highly recommend getting caught up on Tom's series on the life of John Marshall, though I will warn you that it may give you spoilers for what's ahead for Marshall on this podcast, as he is going places, that Marshall. I'll put a link to American Biography on the Source Notes page for this episode, as well as share information on social media, or you can go to acast.com forward slash American Biography, all one word, to give it a listen. For those of you who either have read or are interested in reading more about the Alien and Sedition Acts, historians will often cite Benjamin Franklin Bosch as the first to fall victim to the Sedition Act, but this simply isn't the case. The Sedition Act was not passed until July 14th. Bosch, however, was arrested in June. The confusion is easily apparent as he was arrested on the charge of libeling Adams, but that was under existing law, not the Sedition Act. As the spring was giving way to summer in 1798, Bosch had stepped up his attacks on all Federalist leaders, including the president, who he described as, quote, old, querulous, bald, blind, crippled, toothless Adams. Despite the fact that he was yet again physically assaulted for his adversarial rhetoric, Bosch would not back down in his zeal to the partisan cause. Finally, enough was enough. Charges were filed and Bosch was arrested. He would post bail and continue to carry on the fight. Unfortunately for Bosch, though, he would not make it to trial. As the yellow fever epidemic of 1798 began to ravage Philadelphia, the grandson of Benjamin Franklin would fall ill and die in early September. He was 29 years of age, 
and had just become the father of a fourth child a few days prior. Despite the fact that Bosch was not directly impacted by the new laws, others were. As mentioned last episode, the summer of 1798 would see a return of the yellow fever epidemic to Philadelphia, and Federalist leaders would use the new laws in place, quote, to block the immigration of suspected Haitian subversives as a matter of public safety, since some medical experts felt that the disease originated in the Caribbean. At that point, though, Pernick contends that, rather than an act of protecting the public, the Federalist leaders pushing, quote, for the quarantine or exclusion of the radical French and for limitations on trade with the French islands, were part of a scheme, quote, to exploit the many political implications they discovered in the medical controversy. Meanwhile, an Irish immigrant named John Daly Burke, who was an editor for the New York Times Price, was arrested under the Sedition Act in July. Burke's bail was paid by former Senator Aaron Burr, but rather than await trial, Burke fled to Virginia and disappeared from the annals of history. Arrest of Burke and other newspaper editors did not silence the opposition. Rather, it spurred them on to action. Democratic and Republican editors continued their critiques of the Adams administration in general and the Alien and Sedition Acts in particular. A public meeting in Suffolk, New York, passed a resolution saying that the Sedition Act was an impediment to the right of citizens to publish, quote, opinions respecting the propriety of the measures and officials of the government. A petition was circulated in Northampton County, Pennsylvania, protesting the Sedition Act and collected 1,200 signatures. Then, of course, there was the Beast of Vermont, Matthew Lyon. When he returned home that summer, Lyon came out swinging having a letter critical of Adams and the administration published and reading the letter at various speeches around the state. As we've already seen, Representative Lyon was not one to pass up a fight, and he was ready for a tussle with this one. Back in Philadelphia, though, the fight was one of survival. Benjamin Franklin Bosch would not be the only Philadelphia newspaper man to die during the yellow fever epidemic. His rival, John Fenno, the Gazette of the United States, would succumb to the illness as well, along with physician Elihu H. Smith, who had been co-editor of the Medical Repository, an early scholarly medical journal that had studied previous epidemics. That summer and fall, over 3,500 people would die in the epidemic in Philadelphia, much closer to the 4,000 figure that had died in the 1793 tragedy than the 1,000 from the previous year. During the height of the epidemic, the federal government, i.e. the cabinet officials and those serving under them, temporarily relocated to Trenton, New Jersey. This was not the first time that the Adams administration had made this move either. I noted in episode 2.6 that the government had scattered to nearby towns during the 1797 epidemic. In a case of the underreporting of the details of the Adams administration, I happened to notice while looking at letters from James McHenry for last episode that they were noted as being from Trenton. And the only source that I've been able to find about the 1798 government move is from the U.S. State Department in an online article about the various locations that the State Department has been housed in over the years. Apparently, at least the State Department moved to Trenton in 1797, and all the departments decided to move there in 1798 in order to better work together in their capital away from the capital. As noted in the State Department article, quote, for each move, the department's furniture, books, and papers were carted to the Philadelphia waterfront, shipped up the Delaware River to Lamberton, then just south of Trenton, now a part of that city, and then carted to Trenton. For the return trip, the process was repeated in reverse, and the department would resume its functions in Philadelphia. While in Trenton, the department occupied rooms in the New Jersey State House. Another mention I found of Trenton at the time describes the city thusly. 
Quote, Trenton, a village no larger than Quincy under normal conditions, was overflowing with refugees from Philadelphia, in addition to several hundred government officials and military officers. The State Department at the very least, though it can be assumed that the rest of the departments moved around the same time, moved to Trenton sometime between August 13th and 18th, and wouldn't return to Philadelphia until November 10th or 16th. This additional distance between Adams and his cabinet would put an increased strain on their relations as it further slowed the lines of communication between the administration and the president in Quincy. Elbridge Gary's arrival back in the U.S. would not help matters. As noted last episode, Gary finally had enough of the sometimes hot, sometimes cold reception from Talleyrand and decided to make his way home. Luckily, though, he had left France with the knowledge that Talleyrand and the Directory government were finally serious about seeking talks with the U.S. Gary arrived in Boston the day after Adams wrote his letter to Washington to resolve the order controversy we discussed last episode. As soon as Gary arrived, and indeed, before the ship had even docked, he sent an urgent letter to Adams. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Adams, meanwhile, had spent the summer and early fall trying to gather information from all the sources available to him to what was going on in Philadelphia, France, the Caribbean, and elsewhere, while keeping a watchful eye over Abigail, still suffering from her lingering illness. Adams had little reason to believe that a French invasion was imminent, but he was acutely aware that the French were still attacking American shipping in the Caribbean. Thus, he focused in on the situation with the Navy and kept up a steady correspondence during that time with his newest cabinet member, Secretary of the Navy Benjamin Stoddard. Stoddard had taken to his new post and hit the ground running. As noted by historian Ian Tull, quote, Stoddard despaired of making sense of the incomprehensible accounts he had inherited from his predecessor, i.e. Secretary of War James McHenry, who had previously been in charge of the Naval Construction Project. A rapid fleet mobilization depended on prompt and efficient day-to-day administration, approvals of provisioning requisitions, payments of salaries, orders to move weapons and ammunition, and constant balancing of accounts with a far-flung network of craftsmen and contractors. The drudgery of bookkeeping may not have been the most thrilling aspect of naval business, but Stoddard understood that it was indispensable. Meanwhile, even before the controversy over his rank in the Army was settled, Alexander Hamilton had thrown himself into the work of getting the army into order starting in late July. However, in so doing, he found himself working at cross-purposes with Secretary of War McHenry. At this point, McHenry had been in charge of the War Department for over two years. Thus, he didn't appreciate when Hamilton came in and critiqued his way of taking care of business. Hamilton wrote to McHenry on July 30th, asserting that, quote, I observe you plunged in a vast mass of details. It is essential to the success of the minister of a great department that he subdivide the objects of his care, distribute them among competent assistants, and content himself with a general but vigilant superintendence. Now, it was all well and good for Hamilton to come in and start pronouncing that McHenry just needed to hand off more work to clerks under him, 
But in his inspection of the War Department, it seems that Hamilton missed the fact that there were only a couple of clerks available, not the multitudes of subordinates that Hamilton had enjoyed over at Treasury. Congress refused to allocate funds for more clerks in the War Department. And thus, McHenry had to roll up his sleeves and pitch in with the vast mass in order to get things done. The friendship between the two men cooled significantly as McHenry dug in his heels, determined to retain control over his department, while Hamilton wrote to Washington and other powerful place friends to get their support in asserting control over the war secretary. To Washington, he wrote at the end of July, beginning of August, quote, that my friend McHenry is wholly insufficient for his place, with the additional misfortune of not having himself the least suspicion of the fact. It is so great as to leave no probability that the business of the War Department can make any tolerable progress in his hands. This has been long observed and has been more than once mentioned to the President by members of Congress. He is not insensible, I believe, that the execution of the department does not produce the expected results. But the case is, of course, delicate and embarrassing. It should be remembered, as noted in episode 1.30, Hamilton had never been McHenry's biggest supporter for war secretary. But in this new argument, he was playing on the fact that Washington had been out of Philadelphia for some time. For as noted by McHenry biographer Karen Robbins, at this point, there had only been one written complaint that we know of about McHenry written to Adams. However, the trick worked, and Hamilton would find a willing audience in Washington, who wrote back in early August that, quote, Your opinion respecting the unfitness of a certain gentleman for the office he holds accords with mine, and it is to be regretted sorely at this time that these opinions are so well-founded. I early discovered, after he entered upon the duties of his office, that his talents were unequal to great exertions or deep resources. Now, at this point, Washington was frustrated by the lack of action on mobilizing the army. But as we know, dear listener, this was being held up because of first the order controversy, then the necessity of moving the War Department down to Trenton. Hamilton also wrote to Secretary of State Pickering and Secretary of the Treasury Walcott complaining about McHenry and his conduct and urged them to use their respective positions in the cabinet to get some balls rolling. He didn't stop there, though. Hamilton also wrote to Senator Theodore Sedgwick of Massachusetts along the same lines. In his desire to be the top dog, little did Hamilton think about the damage that he was doing to the administration and to the Federalist Party by pitting major players against one another. Under pressure, McHenry did what he could to maintain peace and facilitate communications between the president in Quincy, the cabinet in Philadelphia and Trenton, Washington at Mount Vernon, and Hamilton in New York. He did at least manage to mollify Washington, who had written to him directly, complaining about the lack of action and communication, and reminding him of his sacrifice of, quote, my life, my reputation, my fortune, my ease, tranquility, and happiness, because everyone wanted him to be commander-in-chief. McHenry stood his ground, though, and sent Washington back a full report of the plans that he had made while in the process of moving his entire department to Trenton and what all he had done, explaining that on some items, the president's absence and the order controversy were causing delays. Washington, at least, would have the decency to try to make amends for his jumped judgment, but any regard that his colleagues in the cabinet had for McHenry had now been spoiled. Walcott wrote to Hamilton that, quote, You must, my friend, come on with the expectation of being Secretary of War in fact. 
Mr. McHenry's good sense, industry, and virtues are of no avail without a certain address and skill in business, which he has not and cannot acquire. Meanwhile in Quincy, the First Lady continued to suffer from her illness. As noted by Withy, Abigail, quote, usually had one or two bouts of intermittent fever a year, but they seldom kept her in bed more than a few days. This attack was the most serious she had ever experienced. For days, she believed herself near death. Nabby had come to Peacefield to visit with her parents and thus was on hand to tent her mother's needs. As Abigail lay ailing, her husband still had an administration to run, and in addition to preparations for war, another decision came upon his desk. Supreme Court Justice James Wilson passed away in August 1798, the first Supreme Court Justice to die while still in office, and his colleague James Iredell had written to Secretary of State Pickering urging that a replacement be put in place immediately in order to attend to, quote, business of the utmost consequence on the Southern Circuit of Courts. For those who don't know, at that point in American history, the federal judiciary system required the six Supreme Court Justices to be assigned to one of three circuits the Eastern, Middle, or Southern Circuits. And twice a year, the two justices assigned to each circuit would ride through and hold court, quote, with the district judge resident in the state or district where the court sat, composed as the circuit court, to hear, quote, cases based on diversity jurisdiction, cases removed from state courts, and cases presenting important federal criminal and civil issues brought by the United States. In a time of rough roads and quite often sparse accommodations, this was a burden on the court, but no circuit more so than the Southern Circuit. Despite the difficulties, it was still work that had to be done, and so the message went to Quincy asking for a replacement to be appointed ASAP. Thankfully, when he received the letter from Pickering, Adams knew exactly who he wanted to appoint. Remember when I said in episode 2.8 that it was likely that Adams had made a note of the name John Marshall? Well, he wrote to Pickering on the 13th, expressing his preference for the vacant Supreme Court seat to go to Marshall. But if Marshall should decline, he also provided another name. As it turns out, Marshall would decline and would write in his letter to Pickering that, quote, I'm equally confident that a more proper person could not be named than the man who was Adams's second choice. Bushrod Washington was born in 1762 as the son of John Augustine Washington and nephew of George Washington. He had shared classes with John Marshall at William and Mary and was well established as a lawyer by 1798. At the recommendation of his uncle, he had thrown his hat into the ring that year for a seat in the Virginia State Legislature. But the letter from Pickering of his appointment to the Supreme Court would change Bushrod's plans. As the Senate was out of session, Bushrod's appointment on September 29th would be a recess appointment, but the Senate would take up the nomination and confirm it on December 20th without issue. Now, I'm going to ask the question that I imagine is on your mind, dear listener. At a time when Adams and Washington were not seeing eye-to-eye on the military order issue, was giving this lifetime appointment to Washington's nephew, with whom he enjoyed a very close relationship, an attempt to get back on Washington's good side? I have to admit that I always thought that Bushrod's appointment was more about George than Bushrod. But after researching and finding that Adams actually had John Marshall as his first choice, has me wondering. Now, Pickering did tell Adams that Marshall was unlikely to accept, though he admitted, quote, probably no appointment would be more universally approved. 
but I am sorry to think there is little chance of his gratifying what must be the public wish as well as yours. Despite this, and despite Adams's acknowledgement that, quote, the name, the connections, the character, the merit and abilities of Mr. Washington are greatly respected, he still wanted Marshall as his first choice. If Marshall declined, though, he felt that Virginia should be represented in the Supreme Court as it hadn't been since 1795, and thus, Bushrod would be an acceptable alternate. Though Bushrod would not stand out in terms of delivering important Supreme Court decisions, Richard E. Ellis asserts that his, quote, great strength was the patience, tact, and fairness he demonstrated while riding circuit, especially in politically charged jury trials. With that settled, the president could turn his mind to other matters, which brings us back to the arrival of Elbridge Gary at the Adams' doorstep. By the time Gary arrived, Abigail was still not in good health, but didn't seem to be in imminent danger. Thus, Gary found the president more focused on the matters of state before him. Gary had been reporting back to the State Department, but in this private meeting with Adams in early October, he was able to personally share everything that had transpired and the news that France seemed serious in its desire for a peaceful resolution to the disputes between the two nations. Adams asserted decades later that Gary's report to Pickering, quote, confirmed these assurances beyond all doubt in my mind and his conversations with me at my own house in Quincy, if anything further had been wanting, would have corroborated the whole. Gary's report met the conditions that Adams had laid out in his message to Congress of June 21st that, quote, I will never send another minister to France without assurances that he will be received respected, and honored as the representative of a great, free, powerful, and independent nation. The challenge now would be to put the brakes on the war machine that he had helped to get going in order to give diplomacy another chance. To be fair, Adams had proceeded cautiously and had not asked for a full declaration of war. However, he knew that Hamilton and McHenry were already hard at work at building up the army. The Navy buildup would be useful even in the event of peace with France, as the Navy was still needed to secure the safety of American commerce on the seas. But an enlarged army could be a problem, especially with Hamilton at the head. Meanwhile, other problems were developing for the president. October 1st had seen a new magazine published. It had the catchy title of The Scourge of Aristocracy and Repository of Important Political Truths. To be fair, the marketing business was not nearly what it would become at that point, and there wasn't as much competition to drive coming up with a title with more buzz. More important to our point, though, is who had put out the magazine. None other than the Lion of Vermont himself. That's right. Representative Matthew Lyon of Vermont used this magazine to attack Federalists for, quote, falsehood, detraction, and calumny and set himself up in this new vehicle communication, quote, to oppose truth to falsehood and to lay before the public such facts as may tend to elucidate the real situation of this country. On October 5th, a grand jury indicted Lyon for sedition. Lyon would serve as his own attorney in the case and would argue before the U.S. Circuit Court that the Sedition Act was unconstitutional. Supreme Court Justice William Patterson would dismiss Lyon's objections and sentence him, quote, to four months in jail, a fine of $1,000, and court costs of $60.96, and ordered that Lyon remain in jail until the fine and court costs were paid, even if it went beyond the four-month sentence. Remember how I said earlier in this episode that Lyon was itching for a fight? 
Well, here it was, dear listener, delivered to him by Justice Patterson with a big red bow wrapped around it. For 1798 was the midterm election year. Lyon would become the first candidate for Congress to run his campaign from a prison cell. On October 14th, he wrote Senator Stevens T. Mason of Virginia of his situation and asserted that he was glad to serve as a martyr for the cause against the Sedition Act, as he, quote, was best able to bear it. Lyon's followers in various parts of the nation would take up his cause, composing poems, articles, and petitions in support of him. He would go on to win re-election in a landslide, infuriating Federalists. Lyon's victory, however, would prove to be one of the few bright spots for Democratic Republicans in the election for the 6th U.S. Congress. Federalists would maintain their majority in the Senate and gain four more seats in the House. Despite their electoral losses, there was reason to hope that the tide might yet turn for the Democratic Republicans. At the same time as candidates were campaigning, the fall of 1798 saw Liberty Polls beginning to rise again in Pennsylvania, but this time they were being raised much closer to Philadelphia than in the lead-up to the Whiskey Rebellion. This time, the dispute was in the counties immediately surrounding Philadelphia. Yet again, though, the dispute causing the protest was over taxes. Remember when I said in episode 2.9 that Congress had passed a new land tax in order to help meet the ballooning military expenditures? Well, some people weren't too happy when tax officials started coming around their property to assess their land in order to determine how much they owed in taxes. As noted in episode 2.6, this land tax was coming on top of shaky economic times along the eastern seaboard, and the counties surrounding Philadelphia, like many rural Pennsylvania counties, had experienced financial issues even before the Panic of 1797. As noted by historian Paul Douglas Newman, quote, in the decade after the Revolution, depreciating paper money and the scarcity of specie led to foreclosures and evictions throughout rural Pennsylvania. There was also a socio-cultural component to the growing agitation. This area of Pennsylvania had a large population of German Lutheran and German Reformed citizens who called themselves Kirchenleiter, or church people. They considered themselves a separate group from the Sektenleiter, German sectarians. While the Kirchenleiter tended to support Democratic Republicans and were a strong political presence in the area, the tax assessors coming around were primarily Quakers or Sektenleiter, as they tended to be Federalists, which further inflamed the Kirchenleiter. As they began discussions among themselves about how they should respond to what they felt was an undemocratic burden being placed upon them, the Kirchenleiter reflected upon what they had seen firsthand during the Whiskey Rebellion, as many of the men in the community had answered then-President Washington's call to service and had marched west with him to put down that insurrection. While this may seem hypocritical to us, looking in hindsight at people protesting attacks who had just a few years prior helped put down other people who were protesting attacks, as Newman explains it, quote, Either they were so local in their perspective that they could not see common ground with agrarian excise resistors in the West, or they perceived themselves as nationalists and patriots, bound by the call of their revolutionary hero and president. It is possible that they held both perspectives at once. Certainly, as we noted in the episodes on the Whiskey Rebellion, Washington's call for troops had been answered and supported by Democratic Republicans as well as Federalists. Now, though, the Kirchenleiter would have to consider what this prior example could provide to them in addressing their current situation. While we'll leave them for the time being, 
Just know that we'll be returning to eastern Pennsylvania sooner rather than later. Citizens in eastern Pennsylvania weren't the only ones with grievances against the administration. In fact, there was a highly placed government official who had a bone to pick with the Federalist. Vice President Thomas Jefferson had been forced to sit through the deliberation of the Alien and Sedition Acts, unable to speak his piece, but having a firm conviction that these were unconstitutional measures. He wrote to Madison on May 13th that, quote, Perhaps it is a universal truth that the loss of liberty of home is to be charged to provisions against danger, real or pretended, from abroad. Then followed up on June 21st that, quote, there, i.e., the Federalist system, is professedly to keep up an alarm. As word started coming in during the summer and fall of how Democratic-Republican editors were being hauled off to jail under the new laws, which Jefferson proclaimed as violating their rights, the vice president was not aware that his own constitutional rights were being violated. Around this time, Secretary of the Treasury Walcott interrogated a Democratic-Republican newly returned from Europe carrying various messages, including one for Jefferson. The messages had been seized illegally, and the letter to Jefferson would never get to him, though it would be found later and published as part of the Walcott letters. Even without this knowledge, Jefferson was well aware that he was under scrutiny and in a precarious situation, and left Philadelphia on June 27th disgusted at the state of things and likely considering what he could do. With prominent Democratic Republicans both in and out of government being arrested and mail being seized and opened, Jefferson would have to proceed carefully. But it seems at some point in the summer or fall, he came to an agreement with his friend James Madison to stage a protest through state legislatures. Note at Jefferson biographer Dumas Malone asserted that, quote, he, i.e. Jefferson, and Madison must have talked about what came to be known as the Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions when Jefferson stopped at Montpelier for the night on July 2nd, though Malone also felt that the two didn't really collaborate in their work to oppose the Alien and Sedition Acts until Madison visited Jefferson at Monticello in late October. At that point, Jefferson had a draft of a resolution ready that he shared with Madison. Somehow, Jefferson got this draft resolution to lawmakers in Kentucky, and after some minor amendments to the text, the Kentucky State Legislature adopted Jefferson's resolution on November 16th. This resolution would introduce a legal theory that would come to play a major role in political debates in the U.S. for decades to come. The Kentucky Resolution put forward the idea that states could, quote, nullify a federal law within its own borders. Meanwhile, Madison drafted his own resolution, and over a month later, on December 24th, Madison's resolution would be approved by the Virginia State Legislature. While toned down from the language in Jefferson's draft, Madison's resolution asserted that state governments, quote, have the right and are duty-bound to interpose for arresting the progress of the evil of the federal government exercising unconstitutional powers, such as was being done with the Alien and Sedition Acts. It is far beyond our scope to talk in this episode about the future of the concept, but for the time being, just put that word nullification in the back of your mind, dear listener, as it will be a thing on down the line. The immediate impact of the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, though, was to provide a rallying cry for Democratic Republicans across the nation to begin to fight back against Federalists, and these forceful resolutions would reignite the party's passions. 
We'll explore more of the impact of all the events that we've discussed in this episode next time in an episode I'd like to call Ready, Aim, Fire. Thanks again to Tom Daly for providing the intro quote for this episode. And be sure to check out American Biography to learn more about the life and career of John Marshall. To see what sources I used for this episode or to listen to past episodes, you can go to the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. On there, you'll also find links to all the places where you can subscribe and listen to the podcast, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many more. If you have any questions about this or any episode, there are a few simple ways to reach me. My email is presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can find me on social media at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, on Twitter at presidencies89, or on Instagram as presidenciespodcast, again, all one word. As always, I thank you so much for listening. Take care, dear friends. Until next time. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.